Please take a seat and find a Bible. Turn to James chapter 1. The message this morning is from James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And the message is entitled, True Religion. This morning we're going to learn about that old time religion from James chapter 1. And see what God has to say about it. About four years ago, a certain YouTube video went viral. And when I say viral, I don't mean to insult your intelligence, but I don't mean something pertaining to a virus. I mean something that uh, went uh, rapidly circulated around the Internet. To date, the video has over 30 million views. And in general, in the general mainstream evangelical community, it caused quite the theological controversy. Having a title that goes, quote, why I hate religion but love Jesus, unquote, you could see how it would appeal to many, but also be rejected by many. Countless words were typed and spoken in response to the author's message. In fact, one well-respected evangelical leader had this to say about the viral video. He said, this video is the sort of thing that many younger Christians love. It sounds good, looks good, and feels good. But then he says, is it really true? Well, listen to a few lines of this poem, and I'll let you decide. He says, quote, What if I told you Jesus came to abolish religion? What if I told you voting Republican really wasn't his mission? What if I told you Republican doesn't automatically mean Christian? And just because you call some people blind doesn't automatically give you vision. Hmm. There was very little doubt that what I just read got the attention of those who are sick and tired of witnessing the gospel being replaced by politics in the pulpit and seeing professing believers arguing about things that have nothing to do with our Great Commission. That's understandable. But the author's message, if you keep reading, is not mainly aimed at cultural Christianity. Let me continue. The poet goes on to say, One thing is vital to mention. How Jesus and religion are on opposite spectrums. You see, one's the work of God, but one's a man-made invention. See, one is a cure, but the other's an infection. See, because religion says do, Jesus says done. Religion says slave, Jesus says son. Religion puts you in bondage, while Jesus sets you free. Now get this. Religion makes you blind, but Jesus makes you see. Impressive, huh? And that's why religion and Jesus are two different clans. Now, what was the key word that you heard in those two verses? There's like a few, a few more verses in that poem, but what was the key word that you heard in just those two verses alone? Religion, right? So the author's message was clear. Jesus and religion are polar opposites having nothing to do with each other. But as 
the other evangelical leader question, is that really true? Some may say yes. Amen. Because all we have to do is go back to Matthew 23 and read how much about read about how much Jesus loathed and condemned the self-righteous religious leaders calling them whitewashed tombs, hypocrites, blind guides, sons of hell and broods of vipers. You can read that and say Jesus hated religion. Well, if that's true, if Jesus hated all forms of religion, then how in the world are we to interpret James 1, 26 and 27? In light of the assertion that Jesus and religion are on opposite spectrums, how do we reconcile Jesus' righteous indignation with the religious Jews and James' explanation of pure and undefiled religion? Well, let me just say off the bat, first of all, that Jesus does not hate all religion. Here's what he does hate. He hates the kind of religion that the Pharisees and the scribes adhere to. The fake religion, the phony religion, the external religion, the self-righteous religion. And that's plain to see because Jesus saved his harshest and most condemning speech for that kind of religion. Second, as we see here in the text before us this morning, there does exist, there does exist a pure, holy, true, Christ-honoring religion. And that's the kind of religion that we're going to learn about today through an exposition of James 1, 26 and 27. Please open your Bible and let's read that together. James 1, 26. James writes to the diaspora scattered abroad Palestine. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. In these two verses that I just read, I want to show you the three S's of true religion. So if you like S's, here's a good message for you. The three S's of true religion. Number one, true religion is self-controlled. Number two, true religion is selfless. And number three, true religion is set apart. Self-controlled, selfless, set apart. Those are the characteristics of the kind of religion that Jesus loves. And I hope that as a result of hearing this message, you will be the kind of religious person who will exude them in your walk with Jesus. So let's unpack these. The first characteristic, the first S of true religion. It's self-controlled, verse 26. James says again, if anyone thinks himself to be religious. Now this adjective religious, this is the only time it's used in the New Testament in that form. Which kind of explains, I guess, why you got so many people, like that guy in the YouTube video that thinks religion's bad. Because admittedly, it's the only time this word religious is used 
to describe a Christian. It could also be rendered as devout, which carries the idea of being diligent to perform a certain act in a general sense. There's nothing really spiritual about the term itself. Generally, all people everywhere are exceptionally religious. Let me repeat that. All people everywhere are exceptionally religious. There's no such thing as an irreligious person. Because to be religious about something or someone is simply to be devoutly committed to something or someone. That's all the word means in a general sense. To be devoutly committed. And, and if someone says, I'm not religious, all you have to do is ask them, what do you live for? Why do you get up in the morning? What do you live for? And the answer to that question reveals that which they are religious about. Or, to put it another way, devoutly committed. The atheist or humanist is 100% devoutly committed to mankind. His ideas, his rules, his discoveries, his potential, and his reason. In fact, if you've been around for a little while, I think it's clear to make the argument that oftentimes the average atheist is by far more committed to his worldview than the average believer, wouldn't you say? And that's why you have, have quote-unquote, humanists or atheists make a big deal about a plaque in Texas that says, don't kill somebody. Crazy, isn't it? Another example, a feminist who is zealously and devoutly committed to the propagation of, quote-unquote, female equality, which don't let that term fool you. In other words, it means what they want to do is eradicate God-ordained roles and biblical femininity. I've met some extremely devoutly committed feminists. Or how about the secularist? Secularist. Or the agnostic. Which is somebody who says, I don't know what's out there. Who knows? The atheist says there's nothing. The Christian says there's something, and you need to bow to him. The agnostic says, eh, who knows? But even that person is wholly and devoutly committed to whatever makes his or her life happy, healthy, and comfortable at the expense of any absolute truth. Now, I could go on and on, but the point that needs to be made is this. Everyone is religious in a general sense because we are all created with a soul that exists to worship something. We are all worshipers. We all bow down to something. We either worship the creation, Romans 1, or we will worship the one true and only living creator. The one who, who ascribes to that religion, the latter, James has a few words to say about that person. Look what he says. If anyone thinks he is to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue. Again, as we saw in verses 19 and 20, we see here that you can tell plenty about a man's religion by simply observing his speech. The ESV and NAS translate it quite literally, which is restrained by a bridle. 
while the NIV went with the paraphrased version, keep a tight rein, you know, keep a tight rein on your tongue. We might use that idiom more often than bridle. And this still gets the point across fairly, fairly clearly. So James uses the imagery of a horse rider controlling the direction and speed of a horse. If you've ever ridden a horse, you know how important it is to have that bridle in where it's supposed to be. Because if you don't have that bridle securely fastened on, you have a 1,200-pound beast with the size, with the brain the size of a walnut, taking wherever it wants to take you. It happened to me once, and I squealed like something. Because I, I got on this horse with no bridle, and it just took off. And it was the most uncontrolling feeling I ever had in my life. So this bit, along with the bridle, it, it's an instrument by which the rider could steer the horse. So it's a natural image of control and direction. A person who adheres to the true religion will manifest control of the tongue by being careful what he or she says. In other words, the Christian self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit, acts in the same way as a bridle attached to the head of a horse. So here's the point. Failure to control one's speech... James asserts, means that one is deceiving oneself about having the true religion. That kind of religion is what? Verse 26, worthless. The one who does not bridle his tongue, control his tongue, he is adhering to a worthless religion. The word worthless, it's used in Scripture to characterize idolatry as being vain or meaningless. So James suggests that the religion that compromises the people who do not control their speech is no better than idolatry. It's false religion. One commentator put it this way, the tongue is not only the indicator of true spirituality, the tongue is not the only indicator of true spirituality, but is one of the most reliable. Now why? Why is observing someone's pattern of speech such a reliable indicator of where they are with God? Because something we do a lot of, don't we? It's been estimated that the average person will speak about 18,000 words a day. And... More if you, speak, if you speak for a living, obviously, right? So if the tongue is not controlled by the Spirit of God, neither is the heart. And religion that does not transform the heart is worthless. It's false, it's vain, it's meaningless. True religion is self-controlled religion. The one who just is always rattling off the mouth whether he's using profanity or not, it's indicative of someone being a part of a false religion. True religion is self-controlled. The second S that characterizes true religion is selflessness. Selflessness, in verse 27. On the contrary, false religion is self-serving, self-righteous, self-exalting, and self-centered. 
But true religion comprises of those who serves. But not only serves generally, but we serve those in need. And in any church or community, who are those who are having the greatest need? Orphans and widows. Look at verse 27 again. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their distress. And to keep oneself unstained by the world. So here, pure just means clean. Defiled means uncorrupted or uncontaminating. And that's the religion that God approves of. Religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. In other words, James is saying, this is how God defines true religion. This is God's standard of religion. And clean and uncorrupted religion involves visiting. Visiting. Look at that verb there in verse 27. To visit. It means to look upon with mercy or favor. To take care of or to tend, or to oversee on one's behalf. It's frequently used in classical Greek for nursing the sick. So what James is, what James is not saying, he's not saying that visitation simply involves popping in, dropping off a plate of cookies, and saying, see you at church next Sunday. That's not visiting orphans and widows. It means something much, much more than that. Our religion compels us to action, not just words or even little acts of service that require very little sacrifice. Our religion compels us to help whoever is in need with anything that they need. Our religion should be characterized by a genuine compassion and care for two categories of people. Let's look at those. Orphans and widows. Orphans and widows. In Old Testament and New Testament times, there wasn't too much of a difference between the culture with regard to orphans and widows between the New Testament and Old Testament. There were generally, widows at the time and orphans were, were generally the neediest people in the church. Why? Because there was a complete absence of money-making possibilities and lack of social welfare of any kind. You know, today we have life insurance. Today we live in a culture where women are actually expected to go out and work and have their own full-time careers. But back then it wasn't like that. When a woman became a widow... She was left with nothing. When a child became an orphan, they were left with nothing. So therefore, God has always had a special concern for needy orphans and widows. He always has. He commanded his people in Exodus 22.22, Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. And the law furthermore specified that the people were to go out of their way to provide for the widow and the orphan. Deuteronomy 14.29 
Isaiah announced that God would no longer recognize the worship his people offered unless they defend the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. In these actions, the people of Israel were to imitate God himself, who was himself a father to the fatherless, which was all of us. We were all once cut off and estranged, spiritual orphans. He was a father to the fatherless and a defender of the widows. So this practice of taking care of orphans and widows, it's, it's always been of the utmost importance in the mind of God. Even into the New Testament. It's not just an Old Testament concept. Other than James 1.27, we could go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're not going to go there for the sake of time. But in 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 3, Paul commands Pastor Timothy to honor widows who are indeed widows. Now I encourage you, soon after this message, go back and study 1 Timothy 5. Because Paul goes on to give a very detailed list of instructions with regard to who exactly qualifies as a true widow. There are pretty specific standards for widows in 1 Timothy chapter 5. So it's plain to see that true religion has always sought to take care of orphans and widows. And let me, let me make an additional word about orphans today to kind of help us put this in perspective. You know, not that it's easier for widows today, but widows today were not, uh, are not held to the same restrictions as they were then. But you know, orphans sort of are. According to the Congressional Coalition of Adoption Institute, in the U.S. alone, there are 397,000 children living without permanent families. 397,000 in America today. Around the world, the number is simply mind-blowing. According to UNICEF, there are an estimated 153 million. 153 million orphans. We have lost one parent at least. And there are approximately 18 million orphans who have lost both parents and living in orphanage, and get this, or on the street. Let that sink in. 18 million orphans living in orphanages are on the street. So if your religion does not move you to have deep compassion for these helpless children. Let me say, your religion is a dead cold one. I remember hearing about the 2010 earthquake in Haiti. You guys remember that? It left around 300,000 people dead. And you also might remember how around the media, the news... There were countless images of children being shown in crowded tents, rubble, just complete chaos and just horror, really. 
And I thought that these children, they're completely stranded. They also have no one to care for them. And they had no one to console them. I was so moved with compassion to the point where I actually went online to research what it would take to adopt one of these children. But if you remember, sadly, the Haitian government put a hold on all foreign adoption because of the influx overwhelmed the system. Now, if there's any group, if there's any religion who is supremely sympathetic toward helpless orphans, it should be us, shouldn't it? We should have deep-seated compassion for the orphans around the world. Now, a key qualifier needs to be made with regard to the application of this mandate, okay? I want you to listen very carefully. Visiting orphans and and, and widows in their distress is whose responsibility? Whose responsibility is it to take care of orphans and widows? Wrong. I heard one person say, Pastor, everybody raise your hand. Everybody do it. This book is written to Christians, plural, in the diaspora. It's not written to a pastor. It's not written to even one church. Every single Christian is responsible to minister to orphans and widows. So, brothers and sisters, please understand that even the bulk of the visiting, even the bulk of the tending to, is not to be done by the leaders. As it was explained this morning, the leaders may facilitate the execution of it, but the actual execution of it, it's not done by two, three, four, or five men in the church. It's done by everybody. James says that visitation is a characteristic of your religion. And it's a primary test. A primary test of true religion is to show compassion and give selflessly of our time, energy, and resources to the helpless in our church. First and foremost, to widows and orphans. Amen? Thirdly, the third S that characterizes true religion is found in verse 27. The third S of true religion is that it's set apart. True religion is set apart. Verse 27, the end of verse 27. James says, to keep oneself unstained from the world. This word translated unstained, in the original, literally means without blemish or spot. It's the same word that's used to speak of the unblemished Lamb of God. In 1 Peter 1, verse 19, referring to what? Jesus' spotless, spotless sinlessness. So we gather here then, the word unstained carries the idea of being unaffected and non-enticed by the moral evil of the world. 
In other words, you, as an adherer to this pure and undefiled religion, you are set apart from the world. You are holy, different, separate, and distinct from the world. Now, I want to cover this this idea of world a little bit here. Because I think there's a lot of confusion generally about what the world is. What does James tend to communicate when he says world? Well, let's do a little word study here. The English word for world is derived from cosmos. And it's to be interpreted in light of its context. Generally, cosmos simply means arrangement or order, referring to the order of creation, Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the cosmos, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Secondly, cosmos can refer to a decoration or ornament, as it's used in 1 Peter 3 to speak of women's decorative wardrobe. Peter, speaking to wives, wrote, Your adornment, your cosmos, must not be merely external. Braiding of hair and wearing of gold jewelry or putting on dresses. Thirdly, cosmos can be used as an idiomatic expression referring to the general or generic populace in the universal sphere of mankind sense. Much like we use the word public today. So there are instances where the word cosmos should not be taken wooden literally, like in John twelve nineteen, speaking to those who met Jesus at, speaking of those, excuse me, who met Jesus at a triumphal entry, John recorded the Pharisees said to one another You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the cosmos has gone after him. The world has gone gone after him. Now, was John saying every single person that existed at that time was following Jesus? Absolutely not. Because we know that most people in the world didn't even know who he was. Remember, he was still some just wacko. He was still just some guy going around claiming to be God and doing magical things. So most people didn't even know who Jesus of Nazareth was. So that is an important understanding of the word cosmos because it gets into other doctrines that's not going there right now. Fourthly, cosmos, depending on the context, can have an unethical or immoral meaning relating to the godless, spiritually bankrupt, and depraved affections of the natural man that does not know Christ. That's the way that James intends to use the word cosmos here. He's referring to a cosmos that has raised from the influence of fallen man with a spirit of dire moral corruption. And and listen, since I'm simply a messenger of God's word, I have to be honest and remind you a hard truth. This is the world we currently live in. And we will live in this cosmos, in an unethical, immoral, decaying, godless world, until we all attain glorification. 
So James is saying, loud and clear, stay away from it. Stay away from the world. Keep yourself clean. Since you have been justified, made clean, through faith alone and Christ alone, you must keep yourself that way by being set apart from the world. That means being set apart from people who are hostile or even indifferent to the truth. Now, by way of application, here's where the text implies something more than applies, meaning you have to fill in the blank for yourself here. And ask yourself, what form of worldliness entices me? And if we're to be honest, there is a, there is a category or area of the world that entices us, all of us, myself included. Let me just name a few. Perhaps one or more of these four might be an area of worldliness that you need to be set apart from more. How about secular pop culture? Movies and music that contain filthy and ungodly language and messages. That's a big one, right? In, in, in our, maybe in the younger generation. How about fashion? You know, there's nothing wrong about keeping up with the never-ending fashion trends and fads of the world until it becomes immodest. Until it becomes immodest. One of my favorite preachers said, if your clothing is a frame for your face from which the glory of God is to shine its proper, if it draws attention to your face, it's proper. But listen, if your clothing draws attention to your body to outline it, to make it noticed, then it's sensual and it's wrong. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Thirdly, how about sensuality? Sensuality, it could be anything like fantasizing about romance or erotic pleasure. You, you know what I mean? There's kids around, so I'm not going to go into that. You know, when I was in seminary, my biblical counseling professor told us about, uh, he, he had a, a, a female um, uh, student. She did a, a, a project on a woman's form of erotica. With men, it's no secret what that tends to be. But with women, it's romance novels. That could turn into sensual fantasy. It's worldliness. Be set apart from it. Fourthly, how about money and material possessions? That's a form of worldliness. You know, living for temporal comforts. Relentlessly allowing your mind to become captivated by the next big project or vacation or car or cheap thrill. Whatever money can buy. Those are just a few. Fill in the blank for yourself. What do you find yourself struggling to be set apart from? We can't allow ourselves to be infected by them. Or else, listen... We will become stained by the world and not remain unstained. 
And if that happens, if we become stained by the world, our religion is not, as James puts it, pure and defiled. What is it? It's dirty and corrupt. So I've shown you the three S's of true religion. According to James 1, 26 and 27, religion, true religion is first self-controlled, selfless, and set apart, three. <laughs> now before I conclude, I just want to make something clear, okay? Something needs to be made, uh, something needs to be clarified here. We would grossly misunderstand these verses, okay, if we were to think that James is intending to summarize here everything that true religion involves, okay? James is not giving a holistic or comprehensive summary of everything our religion should involve. These are three of the main tests, but that's not it. John Calvin said, one of the great reformers, he said, James does not define generally what religion is, but reminds us that religion without the things he mentions is nothing. And John Calvin's Partner, we'll say partner, Martin Luther, agreed. He said, quote, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, suffers nothing, is worth nothing. So, is the religion that James described your religion? What would people say about your religion? When you think of religion, do you think of religion like the poet did in that YouTube video? If that's how you were thinking before today, maybe you need to correct some of your thinking. True religion is an existence. It's self-controlled, it's selfless, it's set apart. And if that's your religion, if you could say with a clean conscience, yes, that is my religion, and I'm going to seek to be more self-controlled and selfless and set apart, be encouraged because that's an indication that you are a follower of the one and true religion. If not, then perhaps you are part of the reason why many people, like the man in the YouTube video, view all forms of religion as fake and superficial and burdensome and most of all antithetical to Christ-centered biblical Christianity. Another way of saying true religion is Christ-centered biblical Christianity and it involves those three S's. True religion is self-controlled, selfless, and set apart. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your time, the time you've given us to sing and to preach, to hear, to fellowship. Thank you that you've given us the truth. I pray that we all will be adherents to the true religion, that we will exude selflessness and holiness. self-control. Thank you that you've given us your spirit so we can do these things because without your spirit we are powerless to do them. Give us a compassion for the needy.
Give us a sensitive conscience with regard to our speech. Give us a hatred for sin and a love for holiness and purity. Pray for those who are in need of help. Not just materially, but spiritually. Those who may be enslaved to a secret sin. Father, give them freedom and deliverance. Cause them to repent and to run to you for forgiveness and cleansing. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name.